Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. What is one non-negotiable in your life? Now, I'm not talking about a money non-negotiable. It could be a lifestyle non-negotiable. You might say, well, it's a non-negotiable that I don't do overtime on Saturdays because I do polo or I do fencing or some other rich person weird sport that no one really does, but it's on top of my mind because I listened to a podcast the other day and Mark Zuckerberg was talking about fencing. We're not only talking about weird hobbies and values, we're talking about you and your money. Today, I'm joined by Dev Raga. He's the anonymous host of our podcast, My Millennial Money Medical, and it's a podcast for those who are interested in money and who work in the medical world, and we're going to have a lot of fun. But we can't do this podcast without our show partner, Tao. When it comes to claim time, moving forward isn't always straightforward. Since every person's circumstances and claim can be different, Tao tailors each recovery approach to ensure customers receive the support that's right for them. They're committed to ensuring you understand and feel confident in how Tao will handle your claim and to make the claims experience as easy as possible. Whatever your journey, Tao's team of claim experts are with you. Tao, ensuring this Australian life. And that's just so important because when we build our solar foundations, part of that is a personal protection package for you and your family. And you're basically buying a claim because if the worst happens, you want to make sure financially you're not at a detriment because you can't work or if you died prematurely. Hey, if you do need help with any of that stuff, head to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and I'll be more than happy to introduce you to a quality advisor. Now, before we get into this episode today, it's a long episode for a Tuesday, I know, but whatever, right? We're going to talk about the non-negotiables a little bit later in the community section. This is like a campfire chat with me and Dev. We go deep. We talk about investing in shares. We talk about different ETFs, health insurance, all the good stuff. You're in great hands. I'll see you guys on the other side. And if you don't know who I am, I'm Glenn James, and you're listening to My Millennial Money. Dev Raga, host of My Millennial Money Medical, welcome back to the main show. Thank you for having me. I think it's been about what eight months. Now? Eight months. Yeah, yeah. eight yeah, months. We sat down um, downstairs. Actually, we're in. Correct. I asked Dev up to my hotel room in Melbourne. Yes. Um, to do a podcast, everyone. So of course, calm down. Uh, Take a chill pill. Yeah, I did leave the do not disturb sign on though. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I just wanted to say, like Dev, thanks for all the effort you do with the My Millennial money medical podcast, it's probably a good time to say like if someone is more maybe analytical, maybe more measured, maybe wants a different style of money learning, go and listen to your podcast. Like someone in the Facebook group said actually, oh, it should be called My Millennial Money Professional. Correct. So, you are talking about personal finance with a lens to medical professionals because you're a medical professional. You're anonymous. Like a, an, a current affair 
you know, scoop in a hotel room, you're in the shadow. I can't see your face right now. Yep. So you're completely anonymous. You're a doctor talking about money for other health workers and professionals. But it, it really is for anyone. Like if you're a brickie and you like a bit of analytics and getting into the weeds, it, the podcast is for them, right? Absolutely. Look, it's pretty much for anyone. Mm. Um, and I guess the medical side of things is the fact that I'm a doctor talking about money, but I have uh, electricians, tradespersons. I actually have a, um, a group of train drivers in WA that apparently consistently listen to my podcast, hopefully not while they're driving their trains. Um, toot, toot. <laughs> it's It's really is designed for anyone that's interested in personal finance because money concepts and financial principles doesn't change with profession. Um, your income or age. may change. Or age, yeah. yeah. And your income may change, um, but your actual savings rates or your investment style or anything like that, most of that is pretty steady. And every time I have a conversation, sometimes I have conversations with um, healthcare workers uh, on, my, on my way to work or on, on the way back. They often reach out to me and say, hey, can you just give me a call because I don't really understand this particular concept. And um, often it comes down to the exact same principles again and again. You've got to spend less than you earn and you've got to save. You've got to try and be as debt-free as possible. Don't have to do anything fancy and invest the rest and rinse and repeat. Yeah. Um, and that concept, if you come back 50, 100 years later, it'll be exactly the same. Mm. And like, we're, like I'm in Melbourne now because we're finishing up the national tour and you will hear this episode a couple of weeks after we do that because we're running all our tour shows. But like I've had people in their 60s come to our live events and catch up. Yep. And, you know, the principles are exactly the same. That's right. And um, it's almost as if I was actually speaking to a doctor who was 50 uh, yesterday and they asked me exactly the same questions as most, you know, 25-year-old mm. doctors or 35-year-old doctors, whatever. And um, it all came down to the same thing. I think I think they made about $600,000 a year, didn't have much savings, didn't have much um, investments, had slightly less super than what I would have thought at their age and didn't have any ETFs and they wanted to learn about ETFs. And I said, why well, are you maximising your super? You're 50. Uh, and they said, well, what does that mean? I said, well, do you you know put 27500 concessionally into your super because that's the most tax-effective way to do it for your retirement? And they said, well, they're not doing that. They're just basically you know, doing whatever the minimum is mm. um, in their workplace. Um, this is 600 combined income, yes. um, uh, husband and wife. And I said, well, there's no point looking at Vanguard ETFs um, and researching all that if you're not doing the basics. Mm. Um, and they also had uh, investment debt, which I thought was a bit risky at the age of 50. I, I'm, I'm very conservative. I'm very yeah, risk averse. And, and I thought, well, you got to do the basics first. Mm. Um, and it comes back to the same, same thing again and again. And... Um, at the end of every phone call that I do, it's almost always the same thing. Mm. Um, it's little things like that, that um, unfortunately, healthcare workers, whether you're doctors, nurses, or anyone really, any profession, you're at risk of completely ignoring the basics if you don't know the basics. What do you, and I'm going to come back to a couple of things you said there. What do you think, you know, your best or worst money tip that you've actually heard yourself that someone said to you? So, when I was uh, money tip, so when I was a surgical registrar, um, I was sort of in my sort of late 
20s or mid to late 20s. I got into surgery. I was very lucky very early on. I did all the right things, um, wore a suit, uh, neutral colours, um, no piercings, no, you know, all sorts of random things. Um, and when I did get in, interestingly, my surgical mentors were my bosses, uh, who are my consultant surgeons. But I had this anaesthetist behind the curtain. We, we, we rarely hear about the anaesthetist because they're the doctors that keep you alive when you have surgery. Uh, and most of surgery is about the surgeons. And this anaesthetist told me about this concept about two things. You've got to learn how to keep your money. So it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. And what I thought he was saying is tax minimization. What he was actually saying is, no, no, you make a lot of money, but you've got to save a lot of money. That's mm. what you keep. Um, and the second thing that he told me was income per unit time. And he said to me, Dev, he said, while you're operating, while you're doing all these things, what's happening to your money in the background? And I said, well, what do you mean? Like I'm operating, I'm, I'm making money this way. And he said, well, that's great, but that's only one source of income. What are you doing in the background? And that really got me thinking about, okay, well, I am saving money. How do I get my passive income up? Um, and ironically, my financial mentor, the best tip that he said was those two things. It's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. And then think about your income per unit time, not mm. just your earned income, but also other income. Mm. Um, incidentally, um, that particular doctor is now worth $150 million. <laughs> so um, fantastic, amazing doctor. Mm. Um, and he was very good at what he did. But what he really inspired me into thinking outside the box because prior to that, I was more thinking, okay, I'll just become a doctor and earn lots of money and life will be okay. Mm. Um, turns out it's not as easy as that process. Yeah, I mean, I've had clients in the past that, you know, earn, you know, partner at a top four law firm, earning four, 450. Mm. Oh, Glenn, I've got a 50 grand credit card debt that I just can't shake. That's no different than someone earning 75 grand Correct. with a $2,000 credit card debt that they quote unquote just can't shake. Exactly. So, I, yeah, this is the whole common denominator thing. Like no one is above gravity and no one is above managing money. And like in my book, I, I'm, I had this quote that I kind of always thought about. I can't command money if I don't respect it. And, you know... I, I've probably that I might have said the quote wrong, but whatever. It's um, you know I have to have this almost reverence for money, but not letting it control me. So I tell my money what to do. Correct. It doesn't control me. I've been guilty in the past, and you know I've recently I I redo my own Glenn James spending plan. You know, mm -hmm. keep my eyes on it or whatnot, and I've you know everyone knows I've recently moved and I'm a rent vestor and you know, rejigged a few things and start up a new financial year. So, I'm redoing it. And I've got a, a, a good skill at really easily making money. Mm. Like it's easy for me. But it's even easier that it gets spent and it doesn't get saved. And that's why for me, like my biggest thing that I've learned from seeing hundreds of clients face to face is those clients that are mum and dad who have earned 80 grand a year average teacher income or whatever that is and just systematically invested over the time mm. somehow end up better than someone who's just spent 250 grand without any structure. Yep. So back to what you said before, I just want to unpack this and we will answer some questions, peeps, because 
you know, I just like catching up and talking shop with Dev every six months and we will make a habit of doing more of these. Age 50 with investment debt, I don't think that's a showstopper, even if you are conservative. And it kind of leads into my, and we can unpack it and, and talk about it. But I was also going to ask you, like we we're talking about different ages and superannuation. Mm. And I was thinking conceptually the other day that as we get older, like the life, start, life stage super funds, they decrease the risk over time, right? So when we get to age 60, we're in a 30% growth portfolio and 70% defensive. And if I'm 60 years old and my life expectancy is another 20 years, no, I need to understand that I still need my money working for me. I agree. So, that's the common notion that if you are that person who is listening to this and you're not quote unquote a millennial and you're in your 50s or early 60s, when you retire and stop working and retire right is coming, everyone with looking at an October launch, I've... um, I've recorded some episodes, so, so that is coming, that podcast for um, over 55s. We need to understand that when we retire, and you've just done a three-part series on superannuation, Yep. and I listen. I always, when I listen- Makes me nervous. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Every time I listen, <laughs> I send a text like, oh, hey, Dev, this, but I'm probably splitting hairs and it doesn't matter, but- um, you, you know, mis- you mispronounced the word mortgage. Dave. Yeah, whatever. Like it's um, <laughs> when you do retire from the workforce, and you might have four hundred thousand dollars in super or six hundred, whatever that is, the super fund just doesn't go here. You've retired. Here's a bank check for six hundred grand. Like no, no, we we still have that money invested, and we drip feed a fortnightly or monthly or weekly income back into our bank account. So that's why we in retirement. Sure, there may need to be an adjustment of asset allocation so we don't have the whole house on, you know, red, but we still want to target a good chunk of our money to a good portion of growth. That's right. I mean, if you retire at the age of 60 and your life expectancy is 85, you've still got a 25-year horizon mm-hmm. of investing runway. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's not as if they're going to just hand you a bank check. You're absolutely right. And this is when like people say to me, well, you know, I'm 40 now and I've only got another 25 years of investing runway. Well, no, you may have another 25 years of working runway, but- And um, it might be closer to 30 by the time that we correct. work out that there's a thing called work-life balance and you should work two days a week for your own mental well-being and correct. purpose. Yeah. yeah. But then after that- um, it's not as if you're going to spend 600K in your super in one year. So if you're a 35-year-old listening right now, your investing runway is almost 50 to 60 years. And it's very hard to comprehend that. Mm. Um, and so when I was talking to this particular doctor age 50, you know, they, they, they wanted to work till the age of 60. Mm. I said, well, that's 10 years, but you've probably got another 25 years on top of that. So you need to think about it because they kept going back to, or oh, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't be in the stock market because I've only got another 15 years left before I fully retire. And I said, well, hang on, your investing runway is not 15 years. Your mm. investing runway is a lot longer. Um, and I think I'm, I'm sure there's statistics and studies to prove that people end up with more money uh, at the end of their retirement than when they started, provided mm. they have some principles and conservative withdrawal rates. Mm. Um, and, and that's the thing about trying to explain it and provide a third perspective 
Um, uh, in, in this particular case, uh, it actually was quite helpful. This particular doctor, unfortunately, had a principal place of residence loan as well as mm. two other investment properties with almost well, well, zero ETFs and I think a super of, you know, about 250000 or something mm. like that. So, a little bit very property heavy, um, but nothing passive income wise wasn't doing much. And that's so. where the, you know, the, you know, really like the financial planning and the strategy comes into play because, you know, when you hang up your tools- you really do want any of your non-deductible debt to be gone. Correct. And I'm okay with a bit of investment debt, you know, because you'd hope that the property is well and truly servicing it and, mm. you know, it's not a burden on you. And if there is an increase in interest rates, which we know is happening, it's not a showstopper. Mm. Uh, but it's just that thing like sometimes I've seen people paint themselves into a corner when it comes to quote-unquote retirement age. Yep. And- the more chance that we've got to not paint ourselves into the corner is to maybe speak with a third party, listen to a podcast and consider other things that we weren't thinking about and, you know, just start painting at the other end of the room and you'll be fine. Mm, <laughs> like exactly. where, oh, is it, is it that simple, is it? Like, well, yes, but you didn't know to start painting that end. Mm. And I think that's what, you know, we're all about with, you know, all these podcasts but just on um, asset allocation in superannuation in particular, you know, there's no such thing as shoulds in this world. Uh, I mean, you should like and subscribe and leave a nice review to either of our podcasts. Absolutely. But I'm, you know, as a motherhood statement, I'm pretty confident to say if you're under 55, I'll, I'll, I'll be even more conservative. If you're under 50... I believe, and I won't use the word should, I believe there is a an ultra, ultra, ultra strong argument that your asset allocation should be around 80-20 in your super. 80% stocks growth. or growth? growth. Yep. yep. That's on the proviso that you understand how that all works. Mm. And because you don't, and you can't touch that money for- if you're 50, well, maybe 10 years. Yep. And even that 10-year period is usually more than the suggested hold time for a growth investment. Yes, So, yeah. which is seven years. I which think, is seven yeah. years. Yeah. I mean, actually, look at the standard risk measure and you probably haven't, but in my book, I did some reviews of different super funds. Yes, I, and, have, I do remember that chapter. And it was just very interesting- how some of these funds were behaving like a 90-10 fund with the standard risk measure, which is a almost like a, I think it was APRA said, hey, super funds, you all got to rate your investment options based on one being basically safe as houses, mm -hmm. cash, I think seven or eight being the highest or the most risk. And it's interesting, it's like, this is a unicorn balanced fund. Well, no, the standard risk measure says seven, and it's got a suggested nine-year hold time. Chill out on the marketing over here. <laughs> like, well, I think the word "balanced" is is oh, it's rubbish. Is, is used a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and of course, if you're balanced with one fund, and is that the same as being balanced with another fund? Mm. Um, I don't know the exact. I think it was Host Plus that you might have used as an example in the book. But um, oh, I think it was Australian Super. I was Australian Super. Yeah. yeah. So like they're balanced funds behaving like a ninety ten. Ninety ten, and yeah. then and you go to another super fund. Balanced fund might be seventy five twenty five. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> You know, what, what does balanced mean? Um, 
yeah. yeah, it's it's all just wording and, and how you interpret it. And you really need to look under the under the rug. And that's why sure. I, I yeah. illustrated like the standard risk measure. That's what you really need to look at. Mm. What does the PDS say that the standardized risk measure says and the minimum hold time and the chances of a negative return in a six-year window or whatever they say. And, you know, it, it's it's good, but like anything, the marketing, you know, the sizzle and the all the good stuff gets us in the door and it's just about learning what your super fund is invested in. Mm. So... Now, you did ask me about a bad money tip. I'll yes. tell you that. Yeah. Um, ICU registrar, when I was doing ICU regging and... Uh, don't pay principal and interest for your place of residence that you live in. Just keep it as interest only payments. My um, eyes can't get any bigger right now. Right, and uh, and I said why, and they said because when you move to another house, you've got as much debt as you can on your principal place, which will now become an investment property, and therefore you can deduct it. And I said, well, okay, if you do that, what? So let's say principal place of uh, residence, your principal and interest payment is three thousand, but now the interest rate payment is only two thousand. What do you do with the extra one thousand? And he didn't have an answer for that because mm. it only works if you take that extra one thousand and use it for other productive purposes. If you spend it, mm. then essentially you start with half a million dollar mortgage, and ten years later you buy another house. You still have a half a million dollar mortgage. Uh, and I and and he he just couldn't answer me that question. And I thought, mm. well, that doesn't sound right. I think I can kind of see where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, that would have been, you know, 52 years ago when you were a reg, yeah? I'm not that old. No. I'm a millennial. Oh, look out. So, um, I-, I um, But there was a good, you know, what, 15 years? Oh, this years? would have been, yeah. This, no, 20. no, this would have been ICU registrar 2012, I think. Oh, 2011 or 10, something like that. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. A couple of things, you know, I can kind of see where he's coming from. And sometimes, and I've even- I've been guilty of this and if you're a human, you've been guilty of this. You've heard something at some point in time that may have been correct. Mm. Seven years later, you're still propagating this information Mm. that's actually no longer correct. Like we've seen all the Facebook groups like, oh, don't go to an advisor. There's just hidden commissions in super funds. Mm. Like categorically not the case. Not allowed anymore. Not allowed, not possible, all that stuff. What I may be thinking is, Back in the day when there was really only vanilla mortgages, sure, it could make sense if you didn't have an offset account. Hmm. I, I think yeah, maybe they didn't but, have offset accounts back then. I'm yeah, not yeah, sure. They're, 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 they probably didn't. Yeah. That's right. So, nowadays, it could be a strategy as long as you've got the offset account and oh, you're keeping there. Yep. However, there is a however. Those comments don't factor in the emotional feeling of I'm paying down my debt. Mm. And particularly in this environment, interest only nowadays, there's a higher interest rate. Oh, of course. So, I would say, I'll give him a, I get it, but he's- Give him a a B. A B, yeah. (laughs) Like, kind of get it, but one, you can't tell people blanket strategies Mm. because you might want to have the feeling of paying down my house- I'm not going to pay extra mortgage repayments, mm. but I like my the home I just moved out of. I bought that seven years ago, brand new townhouse, and the strategy was always to turn that into an investment property. Right, yep. so I had the offset account, my cash hub, 
heap of savings sitting on the offset account. I was still paying principal and interest on that. Mm. And in fact, all my investment properties are principal and interest. Same. Yep. Because that technically might not make financial sense, quote unquote, but for me, it makes money sense, Glenn sense, comfort sense. If anything, for savings, I'm paying down an asset. Well, you're, you're building equity in your in your, That's in right. your property portfolio and in 10 years' time is not to see that principle mm. go down and down and down and your net worth statement go up and up and up. Yeah, yeah I, and, I, and I don't yeah. miss it. Yep, I agree. And for those who might be new to property investing, I don't want to be presumptuous, when I make a mortgage repayment on my investment property, I can only claim the interest back on tax, not the principal payment. Yes. So, Dev, we're going to have a break and we're going to come back and maybe talk about private health insurance. Probably should get on with the yeah. actual podcast. Well, but this is cool. Like, we're just catching up and I just love having these chats because it's almost like a bit of a campfire chat. Oh, without without Vince. When you're up in Sydney next or when Vince, actually, I might, oh no, it's too late. I was going to say I might get him down to Melbourne on Friday night, but um, we'll have you on a campfire chat. When I'm in Sydney, I will definitely text you. Yeah, you'll need about nice two too. and a half hours. I have heard your campfire <laughs> chats and uh, I'd, I'd be lovely to meet Vince. Yeah, yeah, no, good guy. All right, we'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, everyone. Time for the community section of thy week. We asked the Facebook group, what is one non-negotiable in your life? Any there that stand out to you, Dev? Uh, I've got the one with the most likes and from can- Aaron Gore. Yep. Who says, at least one weekend day is 100% my own. If I want to go to the gym that day, I will. If anyone else needs something, it can wait 24 hours. I don't guilt myself on these days if something doesn't get done. So, that speaks to like good personal boundaries, right? Correct. Looking yeah. after yourself. Yeah. Uh, this Aaron goes to the gym, which is looking after your health, which is an investment. Mm. Beth Good, volunteering. 
not negotiable. I always do it. Gives me purpose and skills I wouldn't otherwise get. Yeah, I like that. Agree. Timothy Nesbitt Foster, working in a job I enjoy. No amount of money is worth being miserable. Fortunately, I now have my dream job. Now, absolutely true. Mm. There's nothing worse. Uh, and, and, and I have counseled healthcare workers, particularly doctors who turn up to work miserable. Mm. Um, and trust me, you do not want a miserable doctor looking after your health. Or a miserable airline pilot. Or a miserable airline pilot. Uh, Seal Tool. Don't know if that's a real name, but we'll take it. Husband and my Tuesday together. No one or nothing is replacing our day off work together. We don't cover sick leaves. We don't tend to parent appointments. We don't do house chores or anything, nothing. It's our day to go out for breakfast, walk along the beach with our dogs and just chill. Adrian Filado, spending obscene amounts of money on things I absolutely don't need. That's a non-negotiable, isn't it? Sometimes. Yeah. Um, Can I I say one of my own? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, after a day's work, I love particularly to go out for a walk uh, and sometimes up to two hours. Do you take the girls ever or is it daddy time? Uh, It's usually myself because I do a lot of power walking and and I just- Can you say it's Dev's daddy time? It's it's Dev's time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I love it. And I just walk, walk, walk. And sometimes it gets quite dark and, and, and my wife just rings me because where the hell are you? You haven't come back home. Mm. Um, you know, on, on days that I do that, uh, I love walking around. Mm. Uh, a breath of fresh air is good for your mind and soul. Yeah. Jazz Katharina said sunscreen. That's the best anti-aging cream you can get, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure yeah. about that. Possibly. Yeah. Um, and for me, I've had a melanoma. I'm a high risk. You're very high risk. Um, Do you get um, screening done? You would have yeah, got I've screening done. I literally got a book in because I've just had yeah. a, a reminder from the um, yeah. GP that it's 12 months. Correct. Um, what else? Alex Bannon said a good sleep. Um, Liz Wesling, family first always. You know, the funny thing, and we'll bump out in a second, Nath, of this segment, there's not much about non-negotiables like, I always need to earn at least this or so these are why it's so important with our life that our money and our careers serve us. Correct. So and I think I think non-negotiable is um yeah almost all of these are about lifestyle. Yeah. Um and at the end of the day money is a tool and you got to treat it like a tool and not mm-hmm. let it treat you. Yeah, absolutely. All right guys, that's all for the community segment. Thanks Nate. All right, so we've got a question here. It came in on the IG, the IG, and it was from Liv, and we'll play it right now. Okay, my question is, why do high-yield ETFs such as WiMAX or VHY experience less growth and sometimes no growth compared to ETFs that are growth-focused such as VDHG or VAS? And the second part of my question is, and what part should high-yield ETFs play in a balanced portfolio? Thanks. Okay, so it really, she mentioned some ETFs there, which, you know, we don't need to look at that up. But I can never remember the names. Oh, I know. It's like an, al- it's an alphabet. Um, <laughs> so, conceptually, maybe you could just explain to people what a high-yield ETF is. So, when something, well, a yield is basically, you can think about it as 
an income generating asset. Or, so, or, um, or just a return. Return. Yeah. So you can include the total return, which would include how the price of a share or ETF goes up in value, but also what it does in terms of income generation. Um, I suspect when um, Liv mentioned about high yield, I suspect what they mean is high income uh, producing ETFs. And what that means essentially is you can either buy something that doesn't produce any income and you hope that five, 10 years later, whatever you buy is more valuable. Which is a lot of tech stocks in the States. Which is, a lot pay. Of, which is a lot of tech. Uh, well, I think in the United States- A lot of stocks in the US. US, don't yeah. re- they're not very high dividend stocks, most of them. About 2%. Inv- yeah. 2% is what they generally pay in the S&P 500, but whereas here we're about 4%. environment, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. Um, so you can buy something and say, I don't want any dividend at all. Um, just I just want to invest for growth. So for example- um, you know, Tesla's a great example where they barely pay any dividend. I don't think they pay any dividends. I'm not sure, but- Are they making profit, yeah? I'm not sure. I, th- <laughs> I think they probably are. <laughs> yeah, they um, have to be. Great cars, by the way. Yeah. Um, so, you can buy a stock or ETF that doesn't pay anything, but you hope that it rises in value over mm. time. So, that's a growth ETF. Yeah. Or you can buy something that doesn't really grow much over time, but it pays you an income- during that period of time. And generally speaking, when you have a high yielding asset, it's usually containing companies that are well established. Uh, And when you have a high growth asset, generally they have companies that are not as well established, although it depends on the country. For example, a lot of well established companies in Australia are growth and produce a high yield. Mm. Um, So, what I tend to prefer is I take a very balanced approach. I don't say I just want growth. I don't say I just want yield. I want a bit of both mm. because I feel that an investment has, for me, has to have two criteria. One is when I buy something, it has to have prospects of going up in value over a long period of time. And during that time, it needs to produce an income for me. Mm. Um, if it does one or the other, I get very nervous about it being a very speculative asset. Mm. What about yourself? It's a fascinating thing to unpack and what I would say is not every investment is for everyone. I've got a a toolbox at home in my garage and I mainly use Phillips head screwdriver and a flat blade screwdriver, maybe some pliers around the home. Did you know Mm. that I learnt quite late in life there was actually two types of screwdrivers? Really? Yeah, I actually didn't know. And I actually didn't know. I actually went to Bunnings once and I also didn't know there was two types of light bulbs. Yes. And uh, that's when the Bunnings guy said, what type do you want? And I said, what do you mean? Um, Bayonet or uh, the Quite embarrassing, one. correct. Yeah. But anyway, go on. Next time you're at Bunnings, ask them to um, show you the left-hand screwdriver arrangement. Right. You'll be very surprised. No, there was a left-handed yeah. one. Yeah. No, I didn't know. Which is pretty crazy. Uh, yeah. I thought that was ambidextrous. Yeah. No, oh, okay. ask them. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask them. No. Has the penny dropped yet? Yeah, it has. <laughs> I love it. And this is why if you want technical, matter of fact, go listen to Dev's podcast. I, I'm, I'm not very good at jokes. Yeah. Um, anyway, so toolbox, variety of different tools available, even in the Bunnings tool shop. Most of the time, I don't need every type of tool. There could be different times in my life that I do. When it comes to investing and these 
uh, different ETFs. I think it's important to understand, and you touched on it. So if if you look at uh, an ETF, and I'll just be very crude to make an example up, if over the last two years a balanced ETF, you know Vanguard Diversified Balanced Fund, it did a ten percent return over the last two years or one year. Of that ten percent return in the reporting, there might be three to four percent of that, which is the dividend yield yep. and actual capital growth or you know the capital growing, the unit price growing. Mm-hmm. What you may do is, much like um, if you had a diversified balanced fund and you did a core satellite approach, you might go, well, I want a, a, a lithium or the hydrogen ETF or a, uh, or a REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust, just as a bit of a satellite. So I've got 90% of my core in a bread and butter vanilla portfolio and I've just got some satellites of personal interest or what whatnot, right? I think, you know, the high yield ETFs, you might use that if you do have a truckload of money and you're living off the income. So, it's just spitting out to you every quarter and you're living off it. Or you're in, um, you've got it in superannuation. And when I was an advisor, when we had clients in um, pension phase, I would do a core satellite and maybe do 80% bread and butter balanced portfolio and 20% in a um, an income yep. managed fund. So, it's a high dividend yield. So, it might just be heavy in banks, heavy in Telstra, you know, mm-hmm. um, staples and all that that are well-established businesses. And because it's in pension phase and there's no tax, the franking credits basically spit out a cash return, which means the percentage return is much higher than it would be if it was a growth fund. Is that because it was more of a tax-advantaged environment? Yes. Because if it was outside of super... Yeah, you'd get the franking credits. You'd get the franking credits. But I wasn't putting 100% into income reducing. It was just a bit of a core satellite, a little bit more exposure to get some, you know, a bit of a higher return. So, it, it really, it goes back to, you know, I can go to a secondhand car yard. There's a Corolla, there's a Volvo station wagon, there's a four wheel drive. Like, what car do you want to achieve your goal? If I need something to deliver Uber Eats around, I'm just going to get the Corolla. But if I want to go four-wheel driving, I want to get the four-wheel drive. I don't want the Corolla on the beach. So, the difference is, Dev said it easily, uh, and when you might use that, it really depends how you want to use those ETFs in your portfolio. Yep. Like, if you... Maybe, and I'll, I'll do a wild example, you might have a boring Vanguard diversified growth fund, 90% of your portfolio. Yeah, but I want a little bit of sex and violence. Well, I might go an Asia top 50 ETF growth fund with 10% of our money. So, it really, it's like anything. We don't want all our wealth in the extremes, I believe. Well, I don't. Yep. Everything's about balance. And if you said, oh, I just want a a high income ETF, most of the time it's you're going to run into either uh, lack of sector diversification or country diversification. You might be overweight yep. Australian equities. Correct, because so, you have a high dividend paying that's right, status where, in this country. Yeah, uh, but on the other 
like if we really go down this uh, rabbit hole, I would imagine that a high yielding fund, the unit price would probably be more stable. Yes. And the returns are more stable because it goes back to what you said, the re- you know. Well, the unit price probably doesn't increase very much at all. No, but like you look at like ANZ shares, it's basically yep. been the same price for 10 years. Yep. Like good. So, or more. Um, so, the, the returns can be more stable, but the high growth can be more volatile. Here's might a, be a higher return as well. Here's a question for you. Yeah. What do you say to people that say, well, if you invest in high yielding stocks or ETFs, the tax is higher because the way capital gains is taxed in Australia, for example, mm. is is taxed at a lower... I mean, basically, it's, it's better to have capital gains because if you have high income during your accumulation phase, that is... And let's say if you've got a tax bracket of 35%, wouldn't that mean that you pay more tax? So, I guess my question is, should you take that into account when you choose which ETFs or should you sort of say, pick the one that suits you, don't worry too much about tax environment? My anecdotal um, evidence on this, and and we the same people have questions like, I don't use a managed fund because of the tax drag. I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, oh, I read it on Reddit. Okay. I think some of these things, when you're splitting hairs, it actually doesn't move the needle that much. Mm. I and, and I'll probably say one step further. One, I haven't, full disclosure, I haven't run a projections and, you know, AB tested both of these because I don't do it myself. Mm. I think you'll get a better return focusing on shovel, shoveling money into your portfolio and each quarter having your portfolio automatically rebalanced and just playing the tax cards as they lay. Yep. Oh, yeah, that's so that's I, kind I, of what I've resolved. I tend not to do things just for tax purposes exactly. because essentially you're spending a dollar and getting 45 cents back. So, because uh, a lot of people say that, uh, particularly in the healthcare community, they say, well, you know, tax minimization, tax minimization, tax minimization. If you're paying tax, it's a good thing because you have an income. Mm. Um, and haven't we learnt a story in the last three years to have an income is a good thing. Um, so don't, I sort of have the philosophy that don't let, tax is important, mm. tax minimisation is important, but don't let it rule your life because that's when you end up doing stupid investment mistakes. Um, so uh, yes, the dividends in Australia are taxed a little bit worse off than if you had capital growth, if you don't sell it, for example. Mm. But I don't think that in itself um, should rule how you invest. I actually invest in managed funds myself. Mm. Uh, and this whole notion that, oh, you know, all the capital growth is, gets distributed across every unit holder and therefore it, it's a bit of a tax drag. Yeah, but that's not what managed funds are designed to do. They're not designed to be trading. You, you, you're not meant to be buying and selling managed funds mm. all the time. So net inflow into a managed fund, mm. I would have thought would be significantly more than net outflow. I this is what I will also say to that question. If you had, for example, the two ETFs, and we'll say Australian shares to keep it apples with apples-ish, Australian shares, high growth ETF, Australian shares, high yield ETF, right? And you're saying, I'm doing this on the proviso that it's a better tax outcome doing the high growth. Mm-hmm. One- you're saying that you know what the dividend components are going to be of this portfolio and you don't actually know that. Yep. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. It just, it gets to that splitting hairs and it's just, and if someone is splitting hairs and wants to do something for this way or that way, I don't care. It's not my money. You know what I mean? Like, I think but if- I would tell people to focus on a balanced portfolio, rebalancing. Like, have you shared publicly that you invest what you invest in? Uh, so I just buy the Vanguard ASX 300 outside of super. Yep. And I have sort of a, a, a balanced approach with my super. And, uh, sorry, not outside of super is Vanguard, but yep. inside of super is uh, indexed yep. essentially. Yeah. So I've kept it very simple. Yeah. And what I'm saying is the fact that you've got the index fund out of super, it's automatically rebalanced to the index. So you don't have to do it. That's right. The balanced fund in super that might be indexed every quarter they're rebalancing. So we're taking some growth and putting in a defensive, smoothing out the returns. Correct. I'm just not overcooking my investing. Hmm. And if you're an engineer and you're that way inclined, just be very careful because sometimes you won't make a decision. Sometimes you just get analysis paralysis. Which is what a lot of people have done since January. Yeah. They've just, you know, stopped investing in March, April, May, June. Oh, the market's going to crash, market's going to crash. I think here we are, 7,000 points, I think, today. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole thing is people get their knickers in a knot because they look at the share price chart and it's exactly that, the share price chart. It doesn't factor mm-hmm. in if you reinvested the dividends. Correct. And that's why I made a point in my book, like the charts that I used were an accumulation index because that's the real index, right? Yep. You want to factor in the whole return. So, sure, Woolworths may have cooled off in the last six months. May not have. I don't look at individual Mm. share prices. But through a bear market, companies are still trading and paying income. Woolworths is not going to disappear tomorrow. I don't think so. I still got to buy food. Although I shop at Coles. Yeah. I know you're a Woolworths Uh, fan. I know, yeah. Represent. (laughs) So it's an interesting philosophical chat. And what I would say to Liv is my bigger concern would be the lack of diversification because if you're comparing those two portfolios, let me just bring it up while we're chatting amongst yourselves, everyone. I'm bringing it up now. Uh, YMAX, let's do YMAX. YMAX. Okay, so yeah, it's the Beta Shares ASX Equity Yield um, Maximizer Fund. Um, Australian Top 20 Equity. Yeah, so number one, your top 20 shares. It's only 20. 20. 20 shares. So you're running into a possible diversification risk. And then let's do the other one, um, which I think is the Vanguard High Yield YH. Yeah, uh, VHY. Vanguard um, Australian shares. Let's have a look. Everyone's like, Glenn doesn't even know what oh, this I, is. I, and I it's like, well, who cares? I like, I just invest yeah. in a friggin' volume in a box. Uh, I pay respects to people that actually know all the codes and ticker yeah. symbols and I've got no idea. Um, do, 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 do. Oh, gosh. It, <laughs> benchmark is the FTSE Australian High Yield Dividend Index. Where is the fact sheet making for good podcasting? Uh, okay. The ETF provides low-cost exposure to companies listed on the Australian Securities Exchange that have a higher forecast dividend relative to other ASX-listed companies. Security diversification is achieved by restricting the proportion invested in one industry to 40% of the total ETF and 10% of one company. Okay, so it's got a little bit of science behind it, um, but I can't for the life of me. Does it say oh, the top, top 10 left? holdings? Yep. Yep. 
Um, so the top 10 holdings uh, represent 63% of the portfolio. So look, both of these funds may only have about 20 mm. um, equities. Does it have it at the top left? If you go to the first page on the left-hand side, uh, what does it say? How many holdings does it have? Does it actually say? 70? Oh, 70. 70. 70, yeah. Okay, so yeah. number one, I like the idea of this fund more than the 20 with beta shares because I've got more exposure and more diversification. Mm-hmm. And it's Vanguard. Well, <laughs> hey, full disclosure. Well, full disclosure. They yeah. did um, sponsor an episode <laughs> yeah. and they did some um, thing and I do hold Vanguard. Um, yeah, so do beta, I, everyone. Yeah, if beta shares wants to sponsor the podcast, you know my number. Um, they actually do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I... I honestly think it is more of a question of do we want Liv to put $100,000 of her money into 20 equities that's high growth? She might want to do that. I'm not saying that she can't. All I'm saying is I want you to understand basic rules of diversification. And would I think, and I'll talk if I had a, a brother, I don't have a brother, I've got a sister, if my brother that I've made up comes to me and says, Glenn, I've got $100,000 to invest. What do you reckon? We go down the simple risk and return spectrum. We don't want him just to put hundred grand in CBA Woolworths. Mm. I would hypothesize that we don't want to put hundred grand just in Australian equities. You know, we do have home bias and Australian stock market's fantastic. A lot of quality mm. companies here, but... I would want to see some diversification offshore. Now, the world's a big place. So, I think it is more of a diversification thing and understanding where these fit. Now, and we've we've been talking about this question for about 20 minutes. So, Liv, you're welcome. Uh, Not advice, general. Some some good discussion points. Some some great discussion points. I actually think it is more of a, Liv, what's your bread and butter core portfolio? What is that? It could be DHHF. There you go. V shares. Yep. It could be VDHG. could be VDGR. Whatever that is. Then your bread and butter core portfolio. And do you know what I love about this question? Liv's actually keen on investing and understands high yield, high growth concepts. And she's like, well, how do they fit into a portfolio? And I honestly think it's this, this core satellite thing and Liv... I wouldn't care if you did 80%, 90% in your bread and butter core and put a bit of money in both of these mm. if you're interested in them. Because if that small percentage in these satellites keeps you in the game and interested, we're all winners, baby. And it may act as a cushion yeah, uh, for your returns over time, yeah. yeah, which is what high yield does, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, but you just need to know that the high yield will be more volatile. High yield would be more volatile. Oh, sorry, sorry. Less volatile. Less volatile. Yeah, so yes. she might use it as a cushion. Sorry, yes, you're did, right. Did you yeah. want to re-record that? No. Nah. You happy? Yeah. Always um, happy, Dave. It's so, been a long day. <laughs> it's been a long day. Um, so yeah. So Liv, agree with Glenn. Pick something that you like broadly, and then take a little bit of money and do something that you like on the side if you want to. Can I go one step further? One step further. What are we doing with the dividends out of the high yield ETF? So I'm a great. Uh, advocate of uh, if you don't need the money, then reinvest it. Um, and mine's all automated. 
so I don't need the money now. Is it DRP? Like DRP? Yeah. All the way. And it's really nice to log in every quarter if you wanted to and have a look at that DRP. Is your shoulder sore? No. Oh, thought it might have been rolling in all your money. Uh, no, <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Uh, uh, I, I, I my job is to try and crack a joke to see if you like if it lands on you. I haven't I haven't rolled in my money yet. Yeah, because I haven't seen it because it's all been reinvested. Exactly. But uh, hopefully not not too long to go for that moment. I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I, I mean, I I'm probably if I was live in these satellite situations, I'm taking distributions out of the satellites and putting them into the core. Fair enough. Yeah. Manually every quarter or whenever. Yeah. Yeah. Can you be bothered talking about private health insurance or do you want to do a full episode on it and just no. send people over to your podcast? Because I'd rather that. <laughs> whatever, whatever you prefer. All right. Well, we've probably got I, 10 minutes left. Let's, I don't um, mind. Um, what do you want to do? So, there was a question about Medicare levy, I think. Yeah. Let me open that. We'll just talk amongst yourselves, everyone. Nathan will just put some little thinking music on and then I'm just going to search Dev in the Facebook um, I think I found it do you want me to yeah yeah just read it go so um, I, I don't have the exact question mm. but um, basically the question revolves around how does Medicare Livy work oh was that from Josh Rock I think so yes yeah so I think when it comes to private health insurance and Medicare levy, I think there are four things that people need to understand really well. Number one is they need to understand Medicare levy, what it is, and that's 2% of your taxable income, not really your gross income. So taxable income is gross income minus deductions. And most people pay that unless you have um, no eligibility for Medicare. So if you're a foreigner um, in this country and don't have access to Medicare, then you're not charged the Medicare levy. Fair enough, because why should you subsidise the public mm. health system? I think very low income earners don't pay that. Um, so you've got to have a threshold for that. And I don't know what it, what the exact mm. threshold is. And that's just that's basically was designed as an extra tax on people to support the public health system in addition to income taxes. Now, that was introduced, I'm not sure, some years ago now, and that's stuck. And you'll see that in your returns every year. The second thing you need to understand is Medicare levy surcharge, the so-called MLS. Now, not everyone pays that extra tax. It depends on how much you earn. So the more you earn, the more tax you pay. And it varies between 1% to 1.5%. So 1%, 1.25%, 1.5%. There's three tiers. And for single income earners, I think it starts at around $90,000. And for family income... I think it starts around 180,000 and goes up to 280,000 roughly. So essentially, if you don't have private health insurance and you make that much money, then you'll be slugged another 1 to 1.5% on top of the Medicare levy. And that levy surcharge, that is, sorry, was designed to promote uptake of private health insurance. But it is not designed for people to go and take out minimum private health insurance, such as just extras. It is, you must have hospital cover. You may have extras if you want to, but you must have hospital cover because when you think about it, that's how you're going to offload the public health system. Mm. Now, if you don't have private health insurance, you pay that surcharge on top of the levy. If you have private health insurance, 
you don't pay that surcharge depending on how much you earn. Now, the third thing that people need to understand is when you take private health insurance, you're entitled to a rebate. And that was introduced, I think, in the late 90s, uh, John Howard's era. And the rebate is basically a discount on your private health insurance. That is also based on how much you earn. So if you earn too much, I think greater than 280000 as a family, you're not eligible for any rebate. And that can go up to 24 to 30%, I think it is. So what that means is if you pay $100 for private health insurance and you're eligible for the maximum rebate, you only pay $70 to $75 on it. That's if you go to private health insurance. And that's for hospital cover and extras cover. And the fourth concept you need to understand is lifetime health cover loading. This was introduced because they wanted to make sure that young people take on more private health insurance because when you take any type of insurance, you're transferring the risk. So you don't want to end up with a situation with sicker people taking on private health insurance, which is kind of what happens in the United States, where your health insurance premiums are crazy high. I mean, my cousin pays $30,000 a year. Whereas in Australia, sorry, 30 grand a year in private health. Um, And so we want younger people to take our private health. So what they did was they said, before you turn 31, July the 1st, on the year that you turn 31, if you take up private health insurance, then that premium for your age remains flat for the rest of the cover. Uh, whereas if you don't take private health insurance by the time you turn 31, then every year the premium will rise 2% at least. Now, up to 10 years. Up to 10 years. Yeah. So the maximum it can go up to is 20% from your base premium. This is on top of the yearly private health insurance premium rises that the private health insurance do. So mm. this is in addition to that. So those are the four things that you need to understand. Um, the other thing that people need to understand is just because you've got private health insurance doesn't mean that you are not paying fees to the doctor or to their allied healthcare worker, etc. So... What a doctor charges is based on what their expertise is. Um, But unfortunately, the MBS or the Medicare Benefits Schedule hasn't kept up with pace with cost of living pressures and inflation. And in fact, there's been an MBS freeze up until the 1st of July 2022. Prior to that, the MBS rebates, which is the patient's rebate, that is when you go see a doctor, Mm. the doctor charges, let's say, $80.00. And the rebate is $37 or $38. Yeah. That is the patient's rebate. Yeah. So what's happened is successive Labor and Liberal governments have frozen that rebate. But of course, utilities have gone up, wages have gone up, inflation's gone up over the last, uh, I think it's 2014 when they introduced the freeze. Commercial rent. Everything's gone up. Yep. So therefore, practices, whether it be allied health practices, dental practices, medical practices, non-GP specialist practices, they've had to increase their freeze because they've got to start paying people. Um, you know, superannuation guarantee has gone up from 9% mm. to what is it now? 10 and percent So all of those costs have to be covered. And therefore, the rise of healthcare has gone up. Now, essentially what the government has done is they've charged people Medicare levy 2%. They've also charged them the surcharge if they're eligible. On top of that, they've discreetly and by stealth introduced this gap fees for pay for people that don't realise that their rebate has been frozen. Mm. And therefore, that's the third healthcare tax, which is by stealth, and which is what, at the moment, is a re- real debate online uh, and in the media about uh, you know, bulk billing rates and all that sort of stuff, mm. because it's just not sustainable to bulk bill people um, because 
these practices are small businesses. Yeah, I think the the fallacy is if you're a functioning adult with an income, this will offend a lot of people. Don't bitch and moan if your doctor doesn't bulk will you. Is it's, that it's it's tricky because I think. Well, I, can I just say you know. We say stuff from our experience and all that. Of course, yeah. So, my experience is I'm going to a professional GP, my GP been to him for a long time, 15 minutes, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. Sure, I pay my $88, I'm getting 40 back. Yeah, I can afford that. Yep. And I value him as a professional. Yep. I mean- yeah, that that's just my view. Um, it might not resonate with a lot of people. It's it's tricky because had the MBS rebate been kept up with inflation, then it wouldn't be forty bucks or thirty eight bucks or thirty nine bucks what it is today. It would have been closer to sixty bucks, and your out of pocket expense would only be twenty dollars. Mm. So, um, and I think most healthcare workers, whether you're a doctor, nurse, allied health worker, pharmacist, doesn't matter. I think most healthcare workers would say that people have a right to healthcare no matter what their financial status is. Mm. Um, and um, and I think what's happened over the years is that things have crept up. And this is not a new issue. It's been an issue that's been, on the, you know, being mm. alarms have been sounding for a number of years, just like everything else, mm. um, you know, w- w- what happens, uh, you know, infrastructure and all that sort of stuff collapsing or health system collapsing, whatever it is. But now it's become so obvious that a lot of private practitioners, general practitioners and allied healthcare workers and specialists, uh, non-GP specialists, cannot keep up mm. with the costs that are rising. It's an, yeah. And if we want to, and you probably have to go very shortly, but like if we want to camp on this issue, the private health system, so, you know, had my wrist done in July, private, go there. The private healthcare system in Australia is heavily subsidised by the government. Yes. So, it's a it's a hybrid model. You know, if I keel over here and I've got chest pains, you're not calling Melbourne private, yeah. are you? No. So, it's a true hybrid system. And I think my observations are seeing a GP who's nine times out of 10 is a self-employed small business owner. No, almost, yep. Yeah, maybe 10, nine, high. Yep. He's a small business owner. The local GP is now a hybrid system. Yes. And this is interesting, like, and this podcast is not political and you've pointed out that both sides of the government have, and it's probably Treasury who have made the recommendations. Quite possibly. Which is, you know, just the whatever. It's interesting when, you know, Albo wants to propose these midway clinics. So, it's like, oh, I broke my arm on the weekend. Well, don't go to your GP and don't go to emergencies. Mm. This hybrid. Mm. I mean, where's the staff coming from? Correct. And also, if you've worked your ass off training as a doctor and there's a job going there at these government clinics, are you comfortable with, I'll make a number up, 130 $38,000 a year to work full-time in the government GP clinic? Mm. Maybe, not sure. Or are you like, well, I've trained all this. I'm going to rent a room at a private practice and earn three fifty, mm. and be in the private world. So, I, I don't know what the answer is. All I know is it is complex 
it is more of a hybrid model. And if as a society, we want to pay doctors lower than what they can get in the market, this then, this leads to socialist capitalists, this mm. discussion. This is, and there's people listening to this and they're just like, oh, how dare you say that it's okay to pay to see a doctor? I, I, it's a it's a structural problem. Well, that's right, and 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 look, I think I because think you work in the public system, I work in the public system, and, and and I see the full brunt of people that can't get into their GPs. For me to be able to get in to see my GP now, I've got to wait three weeks because mm. the guy's so damn busy. Yeah, um, and and they're busy because of a number of factors, obviously. But what's happened is there are doctors, whether it be GPs or non GP specialists, who have stopped working. Because they're retiring yep, and they're burnt out. So we have less workforce. We have more demand. And I see the brunt of it in the emergency where patients come for things that perhaps their GP could have seen them and they can't see them due to lack of appointments, lack of PPE, for example, because, um, you know, GP practices are small businesses, so they're not entitled to uh, PPE like N95 masks from the mm. government. You have to buy your own. That adds cost. It's a lot of GPs say, well... Why would I see a sore throat, runny nose um, for a patient that is not prepared to pay, which is quite sad that they can't afford it and that that's a real problem, um, but yet take the financial hit of $10 extra for PPE for that consult. Mm. So now your rebate is frozen. Mm. Then if you bulk bill that person, you are now taking a loss. And I think this is where it gets really tricky because, like I said, most healthcare workers believe in universal healthcare. Um, I don't think anyone should go without. And I think push comes to shove, 99% of doctors, nurses and allied healthcare workers uh, will bulk bill their patients if there's a real financial need. Yeah. And, um, and this is, you know, the, the, the aged care, um, uh, you know, pension card holders and, and healthcare card holders and all that. Yeah. Uh, but you raised a different issue where if you've got a decent income yeah. and you're happy to pay for your holiday, you're happy to pay for your car, happy to pay for your coffee, then it's not sustainable to bulk bill people that have income. Yeah. And I will walk back on that and yeah, reiterate, I was, you know, I know someone who is a GP mm. and that person's like, if, if that person, they just told me they're a CEO of a mining company. Like, I'm not bulk billing them. Mm. But the next patient comes in who's a, a pensioner or it's a child or, yeah, I'll bulk wheel, absolutely. Yep. But I think it goes back to us as the individual with our responsibility of how we conduct our individual affairs. Mm. And if Glenn James with his income walks in and demands, you know, I've got my doctor here. Um, if I demand Dr. James there, mm-hmm. say, oh, hey, mate, I want to be bulk billed today. He'd be like, that's fine. You're no longer my patient. Well, yeah. I don't know what the situation would be, but it wouldn't go down well. It would be unusual for a financial podcaster talking about investments and money to be asking a professional to bulk bill. Yeah. Now, you have every right to ask. And likewise, they're a small business. They have every right to say, well, hang on, it's not really fair because I've got the next patient who's a pensioner and a low-income earner that needs to and be bulk I will say, like, you know, I've just logged into Hot Dog here while we're talking about this. Um, next available appointment in eight days. Mm. So super busy. I can remember 15 years ago, next day you could get Correct. in to see your doctor. Correct. But I will say, like, you pay for convenience. There are clinics in my area where it's a rock up, yep. bulk bill. Yep. You might have to wait an hour, you might yep. have to wait two hours. Yep. 
There's plenty in Melbourne like that. Getting less and less due to all the stuff that we've talked about. But yeah, I, I just want to, it goes back to personal responsibility. If I kick the door down to my doctor and said, I demand to be bulk billed, that says I'm an asshole because I don't value him as a professional and I've got the money. Yeah. And you wouldn't say that to a lawyer. No, that's right. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting how when it comes to health, we, we tend to think that. And and I think, to be honest, push comes to shove. If you um, ask a doctor or allied health care worker, hey, mm. can you reduce your costs for me? Mm. Push comes to shove. And I've got a lot of mates who are surgeons um, uh, that would do it on a whim. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I'm getting my left ankle, I'm booked in to get that operated on, um, lateral ligament reconstructed. Right. Okay, you know, I wear these boots and all that, but like I can walk over a twig and it just rolls out like it's mm. it's gone. He's out of pockets three grand. Yep. Anaesthetist is probably 600 bucks for the procedure. Yep. Um, what else? That's in the private. Yep. So 100% you, private. He only does private. Yep. So if you go in the public, just, for, just to be absolutely clear to everyone listener, it's free to you. Absolutely. So I see patients in the public. I do not charge anything. In fact, I see international visitors- in the public, sometimes I don't charge them because I don't get paid for that. Mm. I don't care if you're from Germany. Um, mm. I will still treat you the same as whether you're from- you Turak. Know, Turak. Yeah, and, but um, that's a public health thing that- Whereas in the private, yeah. you'll be charged. Now, you did mention about $3,000 out-of-pocket and I probably didn't explain this very well. So, one of the questions I get asked quite a lot from patients and non-healthcare workers is, well, if I've got private health insurance and like you, uh, mm. Glenn, that you've got private health- why do you then have to pay out of pocket $3,000? And here's a simple way to explain that. Um, private healthcare entitles you to access to care in the private system, in the hospital system. It doesn't entitle you to free point of care healthcare in the private system. So when you have a procedure um, and that procedure is surgery and that surgery, the surgeon charges $1,800 for that procedure the Medicare benefit schedule might only be $1,000. And what that means is Medicare will fund $750 out of that thousand. So, they pay 75% of that. To the doctor. uh, To the doctor. Yep. Um, And the 25% is covered by your private health insurance. And that 25% varies. Sometimes they pay a little bit more than MBS, but sometimes they don't. But if the doctor charges $1,800, then there's a gap of $800. Mm. That is what is known as a gap fee. Mm. And then you are then responsible to pay that gap fee for the surgeon. Now, if the same thing happens in the anesthetics world, you are then responsible in the anesthetics world. Mm. Um, And that is what's called gap fees. Now, sometimes specialists sign up to various private health insurance, Bupa, Medibank Private, NIE, NIB, for example, and they say, hey, I want to be what's called a no-gap provider. So, you can actually get private health insurance and go to the websites of these, Bupa or whatever it is, and find a surgeon that is a no-gap provider. And dental and optical is common for these. Exactly. Um, And you can reduce your cost that way. Um, Whereas your GP may recommend that you go and see a surgeon that's quite expensive, but you may say to the GP, hey, look, I've done my research for my gallbladder operation. I would like to go see this surgeon great reviews online, they don't charge an arm and a leg and that's okay with me and they're a no-gap provider and that is what private health insurance allows you, that gives you that access and gives you that choice. If you didn't have that, 
yeah, you can go and see a surgeon in the public system and unfortunately get to see a surgeon in the public system. It's quite difficult. There's a bit of a wait depending on your emergency. Um, and then you see them and then they assess you. If you need surgery, they put you on the waiting list and there's another wait. But for life-threatening emergencies, brain tumours, blocked arteries in the heart, these are things that need to be done within usually 30 to 60 days. Stroke even. Stroke. Um, most people would go through the public system. In fact, when I work in emergency, most private health insurance holders, because when they go to a private ED, they have to pay everything up front mm. because, remember, private health insurance doesn't cover outpatients, which is what an emergency department is. It only covers admissions. When I see patients in the public system, I have a lot of patients that have private health care. They come in, they've got a nasty laceration that needs to see a plastic surgeon or needs to get it admitted or whatever. Uh, the very first question I say after I see them is, do you have private health insurance? And they're like, yep. Do you have good cover? Yep. Then I'll just ring the private surgeon straight up and get them admitted in a private hospital and it provides that access to them. But they're still using the emergency department because it triage. doesn't cost them anything yes. at the point of care. Whereas if they went to a private emergency department, everything is out of pocket. So a couple of things there on, so my ankle, I'll, I'll use my wrist first. Um, and I did an episode and I'll get Rach to put in the show notes. I basically, for my right wrist operation, um, I did an episode and detailed all the costs yep. from being in private health, all the scans. And for me, it was weird. So the nerve conduction study for mm. the carpal tunnel yep. was clear. Okay. Ultrasound was clear. MRI was clear. But symptomatic. But symptomatic. Mm. So GP then sent me to the surgeon and he said, yep, well, there you go. Textbook cases, they belong in the textbook. And mm -hmm. he did some tests and, you know, the tap thing and mm. it's tingly. And he's like, yeah, you pretty much, you know, meet the, mm. so we need to go in and try and exclude this. And so pay, um, he didn't charge a gap fee. Mm. And then when I had the second one done, I went in and he goes, oh, so, because I'm, I'm pretty chatty. I'm like, oh, so you don't, like, you're obviously operating private. And he goes, yeah. And, you know, if, if you cut your hand off, um, Tonight, there'd probably be, I don't know, four of us in New South Wales. There's a high chance you'll get me to come and put your hand mm -hmm. on. So, I do a lot in the yep. um, public system and all that. But I said, oh, so why don't you charge me a, a, a gap out of pocket? And he said, oh, it's half our job. Like, it's mm. just bread and butter. I don't, don't need to gouge. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. Mm. Like, it might be considered gouging because mm. he gets paid from um, the health fund and yep. Medicare. Um, but on the ankle... And I'll appreciate your thoughts on this. And everyone, if you need to leave the podcast, you know, feel free to press pause. We're just chatting now. The mm. It's ended. The show's ended. Um, I recently was writing a fair bit about this stuff. And the specialty in the surgeon world, like any specialty, you get your market forces. Mm -hmm. If there was 20 specialist ankle surgeons that specialised within the ankle surgery that did keyhole, like the guy mm -hmm. I go to, if there was 20 of them in Chatswood, he couldn't charge me the three grand. Yep. Because normal market forces. Market forces. Yep. So, all that to say, maybe with the carpal tunnel and the hand surgery, there could be some market forces mm -hmm. where we don't charge that. We run a pretty slick operation. Uh, but like the the specialist that I go to for my ankle, it is a longer surgery. Like mm -hmm. it could be an hour or so or however long. And, mm -hmm. you know, usual market forces come into play. And- I, yeah, absolutely. I could go to the public system. I've had one ankle operation on the right done in public. In fact, it was that bad, the ligament. It, I, it would just roll out on me. And the and the surgeon said at the time, he goes, look, I'm just going to put you through private because 
based on how you're presenting, uh, we can skip the queue. So I didn't have to wait that 18 months yep. because it was actually really affecting my yep. safety, basically. Yep. Walking across the street, he goes, it's just going to roll out. and you. So, yeah, so I, I have gone private, but I pay for convenience mm. and I pay for options. And, you know, I've had my wrist done this year. I booked in for my five-year colonoscopy in September mm-hmm. or October, start of October. And then the end, I'm doing the ankle. Mm. I benefit from private health a lot because basically every year in the last 10 years, I've had some type of procedure. Hmm. So, for me, it is a benefit because I can rock up and say, okay, what day can you do this? And, you know, before my wrist surgery, I kind of said I'd get back to them. And, you know, I was in between, you know, writing this next book and on the tour and moving house. I'm like, oh, I've got a week here before I go to uh, start the tour or whatever. Hmm. And I called, I'm like... Oh, can you get me in next Thursday? Like, yep, done. Hmm. So, you get what you pay for. That's right. And the, don't forget, you can actually be a private patient in a public hospital. So, that actually is not an un, un, unknown option. A lot of people choose that for complex patients. So, yeah. you know, you might have a particular surgical need that you've got, you know, renal failure, you've got a bit of liver issues and being in a private hospital, they might not have all the facilities so, that particular doctor may say, yep, I'll admit you privately in a public hospital and you get the benefit of getting public care, uh, but you get to choose your um, healthcare worker. Most? Um, oh, sorry, you go. I mean, I, I, I have to say, I, I'm, I, I'm incredibly honoured to serve the public hospital system. Uh, we have a marvellous system, but it is only for people uh, that are very, very sick. Yeah. So, what the public hospital system doesn't cater for it doesn't cater for morbidity and lifestyle choices. It caters for death and imminent imminent uh, uh, limb threatening and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I have a real problem with people coming to the emergency department because they couldn't get a GP appointment um, uh, until three or four days later. And when I ask them, well, why are you here? Oh, because, you know, uh, my GP is fully booked and, you know, I've got a sore throat and can you see me now? And that happens a lot. Really? Um, and it's just frustrating when that happens. Yes, that person needs healthcare, but also the person next door to them who's clutching their chest and sweaty and feeling nauseous. Well, I think that would be a little bit more mm. urgent. Um, so, under the under the resource pressures that public hospitals have, they do marvellous work. Um, but it is it, it doesn't take into account pain, for example. So, if you've got chronic back pain with a disc prolapse, um, you know, the common phrase is pain doesn't kill you. Uh, you can manage it with painkillers. Uh, you'll go on the waiting list to see the neurosurgeon in the public system and that's what it doesn't do very well. Mm. But if you've got a spinal tumour, yeah, yeah, you we'll, get you we'll get, get you operated in. on reasonably quickly, particularly mm. if there's an epidural abscess or something like that uh, and, you, and you're very sick. And I think that's where people need to understand is that the public system functions really well. Majority of the training doctors do work in the public system um, and, you know, and the way that it's run and the way the, the audit process, the way you get overseen, everything gets, um, every, there's standards for everything. You know, doctors and nurses have to do competencies every 12 months to two years. There's all these things that you have to do. So, um, it's quite rigorous. Sometimes it's onerous. And the things that I have to do to keep my registration up with four different health networks in Victoria, it's a bit of a pain in the bum, mm. but we have to do it. And if we don't do it, we can't work there. It's as simple as that. I know a lot of medical professionals that, you know, categorically are doctors who the females say, if I have a baby, I won't have a baby in private. 
Depends on the risk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If, if you've got a complex pregnancy, it can be quite a scary experience having it in the private hospital, depending on the private hospital, of course, mm. because some private hospitals don't have neonatal ICU. Um, so, uh, we, we, we had both of our children in the private system, but we made sure we had um, a backup tertiary level public hospital uh, and we made sure the doctor that we chose worked across both sites. Interesting. That's the other thing, because if you've got a private obstetrician who doesn't have any public admitting rights, you're in trouble because when something goes wrong, then they just fish you off Is to that, the public system. Would yeah. that be common that some OBGYNs or whatever don't have public admitting uh, rights? Very common yeah, because right. because the public system can be quite frustrating for healthcare workers and uh, you... So some doctors have had enough. They've done their training there. Um, it's you know it's not um, it's not a walk in the park for some mm. of them. Obstetrics, you know, the training is rigorous. I mean, these people are on call, you know, twenty four seven for the majority of their lives. Um, I only stopped my on call, uh, Glenn, June thirtieth, twenty twenty one. I did a lot of on call in public system, and once you've done sort of ten, twelve years of on call, um, you you sort of you've had enough. So in the private. Yeah, so that they don't have that. I mean, they obviously are on call, but they have lesser number of patients, mm. less potentially less complex patients, um, and of course the rewards of working in the private are significantly higher. But of course, patients can be a little bit more demanding. Mm. And just on that, I think my problem, you know, is we as a society need to be less self-important and less self-entitled and less demanding of the people around us. I agree. And you would see that as a healthcare worker. Someone comes to you in the hospital, they've got the poos with you because they had to wait an hour. Well, essentially what they're saying is their time is more valuable than the patient next door's time or my time or the nurse's time. That's essentially what they're saying. You need to understand, hey, I took longer with the patient before and if I need to with you, I'll do that as well. So I just think, I just hate that entitlement that we see some people have when it comes to healthcare workers. Yeah, I mean, I've, um, I'm always amazed at some of the uh, complaints that I've received, you know, maybe 10, 15 minute wait time, received a complaint. But also, I'm also amazed at some of the patients who just wait mm. for six, eight hours. Uh, my, my, my general thing is if someone waits four hours for a quote unquote non-urgent problem, um, I see them because <laughs> I'm like, you've done your time. Yeah. You know, you, you've given four hours of your life. Yeah. Um, I'll have and, a chat and, with you. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and I think it's, <laughs> I, I kind of feel sorry. I say, oh, I need to see this person next. I often ask the nurse, is it okay if I just squeeze them in? Mm. I know there's a, you know, maybe a cat three waiting, but this guy's cat five that, you know, he's been waiting for a cat bite for like six hours. Uh, come on, you know, we need yeah. to see this guy. And I mean, we really have skirted around the major principles of capitalism, which we know doesn't work in its extreme. Look at the United States. There are some industries that it doesn't work in. Yes. And healthcare is one of those. Okay, here's a question for you. What do you think is the only true socialised service in Australia? I don't know. Is that a trick question? I don't think it's a trick question and I could be wrong with my answer. Socialised service in Australia. I don't know. 100% free. It's provided for by the government. I don't know if it's provided by the government, but the air we breathe is free. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Other than like healthcare, I'm going to draw a parallel here. 
Tell like me. Public health. The fire brigade. You're right. Because people don't... Why do, why do people not bitch and moan when they get the $500 ambulance bill in some states? Mm. So, the, the ambulance in New South Wales isn't free. Same in Victoria. So, that's a hybrid system. Mm. And the army, that's not privatised. Yeah. The yeah, military. Yeah, prisons. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but the fire brigade. Yep. And they're all paid. Some of those fire brigade, God bless you, paid more than some of these medical doctors that oh, are. Oh, yeah. The, anyway. the, the pretty risky job. Yeah, I had true, my true. Uh, 98 green magna burst into flames on the M80 um, uh, several years ago. You know what ago. you call that? You deserve that for having a magna. Well, it, it was, look, that served me through my internship, residency, registration. Did it have a million Ks on it? million Ks on it. Yeah. And it just caught fire uh, in the Western Suburbs, M80 on the way home at 11 o'clock. <laughs> and the Caroline Springs MFB was just on the corner and they came and put out the fire. And that's when I actually found out that the MFB was a free service because I offered to pay them. And they said, no, no, this is a free service. And I said, wow. Yeah. You know, um, that's, that's fantastic. Mm. Um, and I think there are some things that should be like that. Mm. Uh, you can't privatise fire, fire services. Um, healthcare, I have a little bit of a soft spot for public healthcare. Yeah, and um, yeah. so, do, like, in your career, like, and this is going to full circle back to the segment we talked about non-negotiables and values, like, for you, earning, I'll make a number up, just make, make a number up, earning a million dollars a year in private practice and having the empire with, you know, doctors and the, like, it clearly hasn't been your true north, is it? Like, are you saying you're content with what you do? Sure, work sucks some days. Everyone goes through that, but. Yeah. So, look, I'm on a pay-as-you-go employee. Yeah. I get a steady wage um, and I have a steady job. And ironically, during COVID, my income increased Mm. because healthcare workers were in short supply. Yeah. Whereas if you're a private anaesthetist or a surgeon in March, April 2020, yeah, it would have your, list, holiday. <laughs> yeah, your list was basically cancelled. So um, that's the risk that they take and that's that's the um, risk that I take. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I could But that's have, the risk-reward spectrum 101, isn't that's it? Right. That's you right. You want certainty, might be less return. Correct. I was actually in private practice yeah, uh, right. for some years prior to all this and I just got frustrated with- mm you know, the whole accounting side of things and the best statements yeah. and this and that and I've migrated to public work. And that's a, a value play as well. Can't Correct. be bothered doing that crap. Correct. After hours. Yeah. And, and and there's a lot of, for, for people that are not healthcare workers, there's a lot of private healthcare workers do, uh, dentists, doctors, allied health workers, after hours that is unpaid, um, answering phone calls from patients, checking results. All of that is not billable. Mm. Uh, having family conferences with aged care Families often happens after hours. That is not billable yeah. unless you privately bill the family, which no one would pay. So there's a lot of extra work that they do after hours that most people don't realise. Whereas for me, I do a ten hour shift and I'm clocked Go off. home. See yeah. you later. Yeah, and it, it it probably does sound like that I've got a bit of a a grievance uh, with people treating medical people like crap sometimes and that entitlement thing and- Don't forget our nursing colleagues who cop so much abuse. It's ridiculous. And and like, I've got a Um, lot of, and that's why, you know, I really love your podcast and wanted you to join our world. And, you know, we gave away, I think like 150 grand worth of online courses Mm. for medical people at the start of the year. And Mm. because nurses run the freaking hospitals and they're so under overworked 
and they overworked, underpaid, and continuously get stuffed. Yeah. Um, and you know, healthcare workers in general, but uh, nursing staff. Look, uh, two things my boss told me when I first became an intern: um, make sure you don't piss off the ward clerk because they're really important in your life, and don't piss off the nurses. You're allowed to piss off your boss as a doctor, yeah, but don't piss off the nursing staff because yeah. they are so integral to the healthcare system yeah. and, and they, they cop a lot of abuse and, and it just irks me. And that's why I've, I get irate because I, I do have a lot of medical professionals close in my life mm. and I hear the stories of the amount of time doing reports for a court case or something like this and not getting paid for it. Not getting paid. And I'm like, for me, on what planet do you work for free? And this planet for a lot of medical workers. Well, that's right, yeah. And so, that, it just it blows my mind. Fun fact. Yeah. Uh, we're probably over time, but fun well, fact. We're, we're about you, uh, 30 minutes over time. Yeah. But <laughs> if, you, if you take a Centrelink form yeah. to your doctor and get them to fill it out, that is not billable under the Medicare benefit schedule. Mm. So that's why a lot of doctors won't do it because they say, I can't bill unless you pay me privately. And of course, if you're filling a Centrelink form, it's a low-income earner that can't afford to pay the private yeah, it's fee. it's a lose-lose. It's a structural system so that the, the Medicare doesn't fund that and a lot of patients don't understand that. I didn't know that uh, when I first started. I was actually quite uh, surprised. How's that even possible? Centrelink requests a medical report, but Centrelink won't pay. Well, that's a bit weird. Yeah. And expecting the patient to pay. Um, I, um, I'll finish with a funny story. I, I once, you know, because I get like, if I go to the doctor and use his time for whatever reason, mm-hmm. I'm going to pay for him. Mm. Anyway, my GP was, he went away. Um, I had some bloods done and I got a recall mm-hmm. back to the clinic. And I'm like, hmm, it's interesting. So, I, I booked back in with um, my GP because I called the nurse. And I'm like, hey, what's, what's the go? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I can't tell you. I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, with respect, I'm mm-hmm. being dramatic here. Um, I, would, I would not be rude. Um, anyway, I went back to my doctor. He's like, oh, so what are you here for? I'm like, oh, I got a text to come and see you. Like, and he goes, oh, yeah, um, I was away. And <laughs> it was like... My vitamin D mm. was... I was going to say that. Yeah. yeah. Was it vitamin D? Yeah, low. But I'm talking like, what's the band like from 12 I to... I think it's got to be greater than 50 or something. Yeah, yeah it was like mm. 49. So, it, it ticked the asterisk mm. thing. So, what happened was, he's like, yeah, just, I don't know, go in the sun or take supplements. Like, it's winter, show stuff or whatever, go away. And anyway, I walked out. And I did the walk back into his room and I'm like, hey, and I've known him forever. I'm like, look, I'm absolutely going to pay you because I, I just went out and I actually just did pay the $8. Mm. Like, you've got a job, I've booked your time. But I'm just pissed off with the system mm. that no one had discretion and this goes into the liability thing and Correct. all that stuff. That, Correct. To say, hey- this guy's a long-term patient of Dr. Sun. So, the vitamin D is like one number under the line. So, it's triggered the asterisks in bold on the blood test. So, come in where James was like, oh, look, if I was here, I would have just made the call and, yep. you know, the professional call and was like, look, no showstopper, I'll catch up with him next time or whatever. Yep. But it just fell through that crack. And like the, 
the nurse or whoever was doing the blood just has seen it, recall, done, move on. Correct. It's and sometimes automated. Yeah, and it could have been that. And I just said, look, this has just been a big waste of my time and a big waste of yours, and that's why I'm happy to pay, but I don't know if there's any feedback to the practice. Yeah, it's it's a systems issue. Yeah. Sometimes it's a software issue. Yeah. And, um, and I think sometimes any abnormality gets an auto recall. Yeah. So... Um, if your vitamin D was 49, but your vitamin D was 35 last time, I'd say that's a significant improvement. Yes. But the software doesn't recognize yes. the fact yep. that it's an improvement. It goes under 50, therefore needs to be seen. And then it's a medical legal liability. You get three chances to recall the patient. You get registered post, blah, blah, blah. And then you're allowed to write a letter saying, I've tried everything I possibly can. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just more of a like, oh, I hate the system. I'm frigging wasting my time and right. all this stuff. But, and it was like, yeah, well, hey, I saw you. You've just wasted time. I've got the money. Yep. Um, and I think as well, actually, I think it wasn't even him who ordered the bloods because if it was a recall with him, he would have bulk billed mm-hmm. because it was a two-second or whatever. Yeah. But either way. I think this is where telehealth really wins out. That's um, right. And, and this was so a couple of years ago before telehealth. telehealth. So now with telehealth, some patients are eligible. So you got to see your GP within 12 months physically yeah. and then you're eligible. And that's the other thing a lot of patients don't understand. If you haven't yeah. seen your GP- Within the 12 months, you're not eligible for telehealth. Mm. So, you can't have a telehealth consult. And that's where the government sort of has mm. checks and balances to make sure mm. that, um, you know, doctors and nurses and patients are doing the right thing. Mm. Um, but there's there's so many systems issues um, and nowhere is it more obvious than what the pandemic's highlighted. And there are some good things that have come out of it. Telehealth is probably the best well, thing that's come out of it. And even in the medical industry um, and technology, and particularly the practice that I go to, they're really up to speed. Like well, I've just highlighted a, a an issue, but for, if I need a repeat, I just log into HockDoc, yep. pay the $20, yep. write a little note, hey, can I get some more Effexor or Somac? Yep. And the doctor can make the judgment call. Correct. Um, and I, I'm happy because I, I actually emailed the practice and I said, hey, I'm about to go overseas. I can't come in to see uh, Dr. Woolley or whatever. Yep. Um, can you ask him if he can write me a repeat thing? I'm happy to pay the $88, but I just I can't get in between now and next fortnight or whatever. Yep. Like, so it wasn't about me not having to pay. And then they wrote back and go, oh, just follow the link. It's a system, $20, done. Yep. So, that's right. lots of efficiencies, but sometimes- Depending on the medication, of course, but- um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, can I have my opioids? Probably not. No, um, I might want to come in and- Might want to come in and have a chat. Have a chat. <laughs> um, um, uh, so, um, New South Wales doesn't have this, but Victoria has a statewide opioid registry. So, if anyone comes into emergency or any, any clinic- mm. And they want an opioid, I can log in to make sure they're not doctor shopping and it's live. There's a doctor shopper thing in New South Wales. Yeah, it's prescription shopper hotline, but it's a bit more clunky, I think. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Queensland Health has a... I don't know why this is not national. Victoria, yeah. has a, it's called SafeScript. It's a great system. Yeah, there is an equivalent something, but I don't think it's for opioids. I, I don't think it's online. I thought it was more on the phone, but I, I could Either be way, wrong. Yeah. But yeah. you'd be surprised how many people come to emergency during different shifts for the same medication, the back not pain, not not no, yeah, well, back pain or whatever. Not knowing that it's the same system that we use. So if you come yeah. at eight o'clock and you come at five pm, it's a different doctor, but they can log in to the yeah. same system. Uh, I'll make it very obvious to these people that. Um, Did you ever see the pharmacist on Netflix? No. You probably get it, but mm. for anyone else who's interested in the opioid epidemic in the United States, mm. I think this is a loose paraphrase 
too long, didn't read type thing. This guy's son, um, I think he was murdered mm. by a drug dealer, but he was just like garden variety son yep. or whatever, addicted to opioids and the father and the family didn't know it. And he got caught up in a mm. drug thing or something like that, or he had an OD or something like that. But um, the pharmacist then made it his life's mission in the town to get to the bottom of it. And there was some unscrupulous doctors who were also addicted to opioids yep. And the doctors were operating, you know, 10 p.m. clinic till mm. 2 a.m. Um, Huge problem. Hu- There's actually an app for that where you can actually check out the street value of some medications. Wow. In Australia. Gosh. Um so I think in America, the, the issue is feedback is a huge problem. So if you went to the private ED and you don't get what you paid for, then the patient can make a complaint. And therefore, mm. often there's this sort of um, pressure, subtle pressure on the doctor or the nurse to do what the patient wants. Um, whereas in Australia, we don't really um, have that problem yet, although I, th- I think it is getting worse. But it's, but it's pretty hard to pin someone down in Australia if they've done the right thing by the guidelines. Yeah. Um, and if you just follow the rules and regulations and guidelines, it's pretty Do hard you know, to pin you down, although it has happened. This is how wild it is in the States, right? Like every second ad is a drug ad. So it's like the lifestyle things of Correct. Nan and Top there. And They're allowed to advertise specific medications, yep. yep. And they say, ask your doctor to consider Lyrica. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, give me a break. You know what that stuff does? Like, it's just that's so right. ridiculous. That's right. And then, like, <laughs> it's like the last 30% of the commercial is them telling all the side effects. Correct. This may cause diarrhea, this, that, that. Mm. Um, but weirdly in the States, if you're a financial advisor, you can't have a client testimony on your website. It's against the law. But you can as a doctor? Possibly. Well, you can advertise. Drug yeah. companies can advertise. How interesting. Yeah. How wild, right? So, they're more stricter on the financial advisors than they are yeah. on healthcare. Yeah. No, it's, uh, America's an interesting system. Um, it's just the case study of absolute complete freedom isn't good. They've got some huge problems there. Um, I've got a lot of medical colleagues in the US. It's actually cheaper for a US citizen to board a flight to Australia and pay full cost for their knee replacement than it is to have it in there. And they probably get a better outcome. But that's the same reason why we go up to Thailand to get our bloody hair plugs, isn't it? Well, that's for cosmetics. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. if you need heart surgery or something like that, it's probably cheaper but uh, what, to come okay. down under than it is. So, any American listeners? But if you get complications and you're a private paying patient here, what you, you have to there? pay out of pocket. Yeah. yeah. So, but so there's risks. There's always risks. Yeah. Um, but I think it's insane to get a hip replacement. There's like 100, 100K or something ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Whereas here it's probably, you know, 30K or something like yeah. that with, Fra- with comparable outcomes. Yeah. Anyway. That's the most thing. We've gone way off track. But hey, if you're still listening, thank you so much for hanging around. We didn't solve many of the world's problems, but we had a try. We, we went from money to lifestyle to healthcare to socialism to, socialism, <laughs> to values. And you can't just talk about money. You know, we're very fortunate in our lives to have a decent amount of income and we're generally healthy. Um, both being males, we have access to things that some other people might not. So, um, But it's important to keep at the back of our minds that, that there are some people who don't have that privilege and luxury. Um, and that's in the money world, that's in the life world, that's in the health world, that's in the social world. And, um, and that's what I like about having a bit of a campfire chat yeah. about all these issues because hopefully people have understood 
about money in this episode, but also about some of the nuances of healthcare, mm. which they might not have understood before. And yeah, and I do say all my like over the top comments, knowing that the median income of the listener of My Millennial Money is earning $91,000. Which is significantly higher than the Australian income, I think, isn't it? What's yeah. The Australian median 60, 60 odd. 60 yeah. something, yeah. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I just, so, I say everything with grace and, you know, I sprinkle some salt everywhere. So, it's, um, mm. yeah. You've got a relatively educated audience in terms of finances. Yeah, and so income as well. Part like. of the, if you're part of the My Millennial community or any finance community, you're already ahead. ahead. Yeah. Already ahead. And if you just started and found it and you, you know, you've got a lower income and you're just getting started and you might be in debt. The fact that you're listening is the start of a process. So life is like a big ball of rubber bands. Every rubber band is an issue and everything's just plunk together. So we'll leave it there. Do, you, dr- do you drink red wine? I don't drink any alcohol. <sighs> so I'm one of those, no, we don't. So I don't I'm drink a teetotaler. I don't drink either. Well, I don't drink wine or beer. Or- I don't drink any alcohol. Oh, you don't? No. Oh, right. Yeah. No. I was going to give you this free bottle of wine that the hotel gave me. Oh, right. It's um, a, um, a DeBortley. It's a 2021 Shiraz. I'll give it away at the event on Friday night as that, a door that prize. That would be fantastic. We're, we're a bit boring uh, at our household, unfortunately. Yeah, so am I. Uh, you can listen to Dev Raga over on My Millennial Money Medical. Other than that, we'll see you next time, Dev. Thank you very much for having me and hope you have your wonderful stay in Melbourne, which, as you know, is the greatest city in the world. Is it? <laughs> Is it? (laughs) Nah, it's pretty good. Ending with a controversy. Yeah, okay, bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.